Greetings, listeners. This is Lincoln Snyder, and I am president and CEO of the National Catholic Educational Association, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, we are very grateful today to have our good friend, Dr. Ashley Rogers Berner, as our guest on the podcast. This is a very exciting opportunity for us to have a conversation and share it with you because she is one of the top experts in the country on plurality in education, discourse, and dialogue. I think uh, what that really means is she's a good friend of Catholic schools and all of the things that we are doing as a, as a service, not just to the church, but to the nation. So a little bit about Dr. Berner. Uh, she, is a, uh, she is the director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy, and she's an associate professor of education. Uh, she's uh, previously worked at the City University of New York, as well as for the University of Virginia. She is the author of the book, which is available on Audible, as well as all your favorite outlet, outlets, entitled Pluralism in American Public Education, No One Way to School, and that was published in 2017. She's had a number of articles published uh, uh, online, including with uh, Manhattan Institute uh, and uh, other places, if you just Google her. Uh, and uh, she has a new book coming out in the coming winter. So, Ashley, it's such a joy to have you here, and it's it's really a, um, a, a blessing to, to take a half hour of your time and learn about all the great things that you're doing for American education. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for everything you do for students across the country. It's a real honor to be with you. Well, hey, it's our, it's our pleasure. And uh, so we first met at CAPE, so Council for American Private Education, and we served together on a, on a board that really is an ecumenical group of, of uh, all the private school associations. And so NCEA is one, but it's all of our friends from Jewish education and Quaker education and the different Protestant education systems, as well as uh, folks that have uh, no religious affiliation at all, um, independent schools. And so uh, tell me a little bit about um, your view. And obviously, you're, you're a big advocate for, for private education in general. But so starting with the broad, tell me about your view of working with CAPE or with private schools in general and, and why this has become such an important thing to you. So CAPE is a very important organization for me. And I think it my service on, on the board there is it really reflects my commitment and I think my institute's commitment to school sector agnosticism. And by that, I mean, you know, in this country, the United States, we, we have this hundred year history of, of district schools are public education. They're the only legitimate carrier of public education. Everything else is kind of public versus private, private versus charter. There's a lot of kind of com competition and school sector animosity that's baked into our system. And, and I, I think uh, the, 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 the more generous stance that most democracies have is that every school can contribute to the public square, the public good, and all the schools uh, count and matter, should be funded, should be encouraged to improve. So it, it's, a, it's really um, a joy for me to be involved with the private education side of the house. I work a lot with different private school networks, a lot with district school networks. So... And it's um, an interesting thing when you look at the American system versus the systems in other countries. And so I know you, you have a degree from Oxford and you've done a lot of research and say the way education works in Europe. And um, so we could take it a country like the Netherlands, for example, that, that it's a, yeah, has a reputation as being a fairly progressive country in terms of its politics. 
Uh, but if you look at their school system, they have this plural school system where uh, there is um, there are religious schools operating next door to public district schools or what we would consider public charter schools. And parents have all this choice as to where their child is is going to go. So, um, you know, you've written about this in different articles uh, before, like for Johns Hopkins that are you know, available to our listeners on the Web. And we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, could you share a little bit about you know, what you've learned about how it's done other places and what you think the U.S. could learn from that? Absolutely. So, so I was quite surprised uh, when I went over to Oxford. I did a, a master's there, and then I went back to do a doctorate with my two daughters with me, and they were. In, I enrolled them in a Catholic school that was funded by the state, um, and and I began to learn that England funds Jewish day schools and Hindu girls schools and humanist schools. And the Anglican church is the primary provider of, of elementary schools. And they didn't pit sectors against each other. So I began to study the broader picture and realized to my amazement that most countries are plural. By educational pluralism, what I mean is that most countries have a plural structure. They assume that choice by design is important. And they also assume that academic quality by design is important. And so when you look at it in that light, to your point, the Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. And yet all the kids have to take the same assessments that are content rich. So you have this remarkable handshake between honoring the differences that parents and families bring and children need structurally by funding schools that that map onto their needs. And at the same time, that the, the public good requires and civic formation requires a common language, a common body of knowledge and reference points. So those two things actually work independently but positively towards student success. So educational pluralism was a big shock to me, and now it's all I think about. It's so fascinating. The American Catholic school system is in many ways a response to 19th century discrimination against Catholics. You know, as, and, and as you're well aware, and I'm sure most of our listeners are too, you know, there was a time when public education in the United States looked more or less like non-denominational Protestant education. Absolutely. And, and the Catholic Church had to create this parallel system. And so um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, looking from the outside in at, at, at the Catholic school system, how it's evolved? I mean, do you have any thoughts or takes on, you know, how we ended up where we're at in the United States versus some oh, of the yes. fellow industrialized countries? Absolutely. So two responses to your question. First is how did we get to this very binary view of public versus private? And you're, you're absolutely right. That comes from the 19th century culture wars. Uh, our, our country used to be plural, just like most democracies are around the world still. We used to fund uh, schools that reflected the local population's religious commitment or pedagogical or philosophical commitment. And um, this didn't change, despite Horace Mann's argument for the one system. Didn't change until the mid-century when waves of Catholic immigrants came en masse to the United States. And the Protestants, of course, the governments were used to funding Catholic schools. 
that was par for the course in the United States, but so many Catholics. In some cities like Boston, Catholics were the majority among school kids. And the pro it was a tipping point. The Protestant majority felt threatened by so many Catholics whom they didn't believe could become good citizens. And so after the Civil War, post-Civil War Republicans at the political level and Ku Klux Klan at the grassroots level kind of represented these, the, this movement, this nativist movement that argued for defunding Catholic schools. That's the origin of our unitary school system. In fact, many of our constitutions, our state constitutions, have uniform school system written into it. This all happened after the Civil War. Those same legislatures that voted to defund Catholic education under the guise of sectarian education, those same legislatures voted to require Protestant prayers, Protestant Bibles, and so forth. So obviously, majoritarian cultures don't always understand themselves as such. And this is precisely what happened. The Protestant majorities could say, oh, this is not sectarian. But of course, if you weren't Protestant, if you were Jewish or atheist or Catholic or Jehovah's Witness, you knew what this was, right? It was selected. Um, so that's how we started this process, uh, was the culture wars of the 20th century, of the 19th century. And that's just baked into our psyche now, our understanding of private versus public. But to your second point, which is equally as important, the Catholic schools in this country did have to develop unfunded and a parallel system. Those schools, particularly Catholic high schools, have had an outsized positive impact on citizenship, on academic success, and on civic behaviors. Now, this was really emerged in the research starting in the 60s, but in the 70s and 80s, um, James Coleman's work and Tony Bright's work that just found Catholic high schools, says James Coleman, are the real common school. And Tony Bright, who's now famous for effective school systems and so forth, spent a long time studying Catholic high schools. What is it about Catholic high schools that lead to these outcomes? And really and truly, uh, if you could boil it down, it's number one, a thick school culture where all of, where the normative values are clear, where everyone knows what they're about, where the parents, the teachers, the students, administrators are all singing from the same songbook. That's what we mean by strong school culture, and at the same time, a rigorous liberal arts curriculum. And so James Coleman, who I can tell you more about him if you want, but he's like he's one of the, the, the first person in American history to really study the outcomes of education. Um, he, he called the Catholic high schools, quote, the real common school of the United States because Within four years, those schools were closing the achievement gaps between wealthy and poor kids. I mean, this is just stunning. Now that the landscape has shifted since then, Catholic schools have changed. Many of them aren't as rigorous as they were academically, but nevertheless, this is a really important point that Catholic schools at their best provide these strong school cultures and robust academic content. Let's um, develop that notion then of, of Catholic schools being a civic good. This is something that I wrote about in an essay for the for the Holy See, um, where, and we'll talk about this later, where the Pope actually, or the Holy See, gave us an instruction on doing a better job of talking to each other. And so I, we'll explore that in a few minutes. But first, 
I, one of the great things it seems to me about Catholic education, and maybe something that that we don't always see in ourselves as clearly as your research and writing suggests we should, is us being a civic good. I mean, obviously, we are trying to build a bench for the church and, and a bench of servant leaders, but not just servant leaders for the church, but also servant leaders for the world. And I think one thing that you've suggested really clearly in our conversations is that Catholic schools do a really good job of preparing engaged citizens. And so um, could you take that point you just made and develop it a little more? What, what, is, what should we be thinking about as Catholic educators or be self-aware of that makes us good at forming these engaged and responsible citizens and civic leaders? Sure. So political scientists look at engaged citizenship as having four key components, and all of them are potentially developed in schools. I mean, you know, this is what we, why we raise taxes for education is to support the next generation's democracy. So those four capacities are political or civic knowledge, political or civic skills, the habit of engagement in community, and then civil tolerance. So let me just unpack each one of those and talk about how they are formed. So political knowledge or civic skills is more is about more than just how many branches of government do we have in the United States. Of course it's that. But really it is the whole perspective that comes from engaging with history across time and space, geography, religious, uh, comparative religion, art, music, all the things that go with the humanities curriculum that give us perspective. That is political knowledge. So the schools can develop that or not. Um, Catholic schools and the research have historically developed that in the high school, particularly. So that's political knowledge. The second, political skills, the, ha the capacity to speak well, write clearly, interpret legislation, you know, all of those kind of social capital skills that a good school also builds and supports. The third of the habit of engagement, this can be very narrow, you know, knowing that you will vote, so forth, but it's also just being involved in your community. And for students to have this norm and carried into adulthood, it seems to me that a school cult, a culture that teaches students there, there is more than just the self. There are obligations and duties and norms beyond the self in our hyper individualistic community, country, having that voice, that habit of engagement. Quaker schools are also very good at this. Certain charter schools are also very good at this. Believe it or not, district schools can be. Just requires intentionality. So that habit of engagement. The last capacity is the one I focus a lot on right now, and that is the habit of civil tolerance. So civil tolerance means the capacity to hold strong beliefs that are well-founded and also to listen to someone's opposing beliefs and hold that with respect. Now, this, the capacity for debate and deliberation is a learned habit. It is learned. All We don't come from our mother's wombs able to tolerate dissent and debate ideas. And it's critical that schools can do this. So the best, you know, the, the ideal is that every classroom 
teachers are providing alternative narratives, alternative evidence, teaching kids how to debate, even if they don't believe in either position, and creating the conditions for what we call an open classroom climate, that has an outsized positive impact on civil tolerance. This is a very strong point in international research, also in Dave Campbell's research on Catholic schools, by the way, um, that have that this kind of reasoning is 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 learned well or should be. My institute has a school culture survey right now that includes some of those international questions about the open classroom climate. And there is real variability for political reasons, for all kinds of reasons, why it's not happening as it should in American schools. It's fascinating. The first time we met, I, I think I asked you a question along along these lines. You know, for us as Catholics, we have our dogmas. I mean, there's things that are, we have beliefs or that, that we view as truth, like being made in the image of likeness of God. I mean, we have a very particular right. view of the human person that informs all the things we do. And, you know, obviously we see these as positives. That's why everybody on this podcast is teaching at a, at a Catholic school is, you know, we believe in this mission. So we have our orthodoxies for lack of a better, but, but we do a better job of teaching civil tolerance and discourse um, than people that presumably, or institutions rather, that don't have those orthodoxies. And so like it, I, iron, ironic's not the word, but there, there's something paradoxical about it, that, that, that sectarian schools actually seem to be cultivating those habits of civil tolerance really well, presumably more so than some places that don't have the same orthodoxies that we do. And what, what speak a little bit to that. Sure. So the, the, the two, two responses to that. First of all, there is variability within every sector. So you would find, you know, we do work with Catholic systems across the country. Some of them have better open classroom climates than others, you know, and, and so it's not uniform. The same with district schools, the, you know, the same with charter schools. There's meaningful variability. And part of what pluralism and these kind of tools gives us is the capacity to say, hey, Every school can improve on these things. Here's some things that work no matter what kind of school it is. But I think the truth is that education can't be morally neutral. It just can't be. Every, the, everything you put in front of children, all the, way that the, the ways that the staff relate to one another, the way the disciplinary code is, the way the dress codes work, uh, honor codes, all of these are normative claims. And so... You know, even the things we can't talk about at school are formational for kids. So it's not the case that district schools don't have normative claims. They just may not be very clear about it. And it's that clarity of the, like, the alignment of here is who we say we are. We're saying it up front. We're articulating it. It has consequences for our institutional behavior. That through line is what really causes you know, this kind of commitment to community, to something outside the self. And Catholic schools have, have historically been very, very strong on this. The other piece, I think, for civil tolerance is just a factor of, of knowledge. You can't debate intelligently if you don't have knowledge of what do Marxists believe? 
you know, or what were the real deliberations in going into the Gulf War, for example, or, you know, all these things you have to actually have knowledge. And insofar as Catholic high schools in particular, but any school that is committed to a content rich curriculum is going to have a leg up there because they have more to debate about. Now in pluralistic countries, just to circle back to where we started, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of these countries have required subject matter. Like the Netherlands, as we talked about, funds 36 different kinds of schools. They even fund creationist schools. But all of those kids have to demonstrate competence of evolutionary theory. So there's a, or conversely, most countries in Europe require comparative religion and ethics every year, K to 12. And yet they fund Jewish day schools, Catholic day schools, Islamic, so forth, secular. So the point is they don't confuse exposure and indoctrination. And that's actually the subtitle of my, of my next book is, you know, this difference between exposure and indoctrination, because I think when parents have the capacity to enroll their kids in an environment that feels comfortable for them, then a stream of ideas and knowledge and even subject matter that you might not agree with becomes interpreted through a lens that you're comfortable with. So in a Catholic school, for example, you, you could read um, Marxism, you know, you could read Marxist texts, but you would analyze it from the perspective of, of a Catholic worldview. It makes all the difference in the world. And you write, you have data on how this difference in mindset influences what kind of servants the children become. So like I was fascinated that, you know, for example, Catholic school graduates, and this is not to um, say that some of our friends in other, other sorts of schools don't also have strong results in servant leadership, but you know, the fact that Catholic school graduates, for example, are 50% more likely than public school graduates to volunteer for organizations that fight poverty. I mean, these are effects that are really well documented in, in point after point as I read your books. In other words, we're, the reason I bring this up, so we're seeing this big uptick in school choice. I mean, do you, and it's more controversial in some states than others. I mean, it's so like a lot of these discussions, of course, it's very political. It has to be just because of the conversation that it is. But I mean, do you get a sense that there, there is at least more of an exploration now on the part of our civic authorities to say, well, yeah, maybe plurality does have a, a place as they're looking at all of these different avenues for more parental choice in education? Or wh where do you see the educate that debate going over the next few years? I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit, I, I mean, I think it's a very good question. I ask myself this all the time as well. I think um, the, the debate within the school choice movement is just as important as the debate between the school choice movement and the kind of teacher union only district model. And that is this, the libertarian side of the school choice movement does not look favorably upon any accountability structures around education. They, they prefer for parents enrollment decisions to be the quality control measure. And People like me, I mean, I, I consider pluralism kind of a third way. It says yes to government funding, yes to civil society, and also yes to academic quality. So I think some of the internal battles that are happening are between what, how much accountability is appropriate um, 
for a pub, you know, is there a need for a public assurance of quality? I say yes. Many, many libertarians, you know, libertarians say no, but um, I think, I think yes to the larger question. Yes, there's more openness now to the kind of public funding for private schools. It's expanding across the country and legislatures and so forth. We're still not where I would like to be. We're still in a place of competition and combat. But my hope is that we can come through this and out the other side so that we're not pitting charters and districts and private schools against one another. That's that's my goal. But I want to say something else about the, the data and the research on this. One of the reasons why there's so much more data about Catholic schools than about any of the other private school sectors is because most of those sectors have been too small and there hasn't been the funding to study them. So for example, CARDIS, which is a, a think tank up in, in Canada, has done a lot of work comparing um, graduates of Catholic pro, sort of evangelical homeschooling, independent school and district schools. They haven't had the funding to do the same for Jewish day schools or Islamic schools. And you know, that's, that's actually been a conversation for a long period of time. How can we make sure that all of those school sectors, Quaker schools, are also included and then disaggregated for some of this data? Because I, I'm sure we'd see many similar findings. Um, I'm sure we'd see the similar kinds of variability. You know, some, some, some Catholic school systems are very, very intent on data, data use, you know, strong academic content, others not so much. It's, it's part of, I think, what you're all, you, the, the NCEA's mission is to help all of the Catholic systems be as true to themselves as they can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the joys of NCEA is that, you know, for us being a membership association that re represents schools, we, we do very much love our, our big tent view that, that, you know, there's so many charisms within Catholic education. There's a, a, obviously one mission, but there's this heterogeneity of approaches and tackling that mission. That's why we've got all these great stories of founding saints that had a particular recipe that I think appealed to particular families. So, yeah, I mean, this is an exciting time. Um, you know, the Catholic Church believes very strongly in in parental choice as such, uh, and so it, it's you know it is good to see efforts uh, from the perspective of the church to increase the options that parents have. You know, we know that affordability is a big issue, and because we haven't had this this plural system, it's meant that the parents or volunteers That's or right. philanthropists or others. I mean, Catholic schools have always been expensive. It's just that they were paid for by. 180,000 people that were vowed religious in the past that were willing to essentially work for close to free to, to fund it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Otis. Otis is an all-in-one student growth platform that allows educators to gather, analyze, and act on student data. They offer integrated grading and assessment tools so that you can easily monitor progress and use data to drive instruction. Otis is built for educators by educators and offers world-class support to users from day one. To request a demo and see why schools nationwide are choosing Otis, visit otis.com. That's O-T-U-S dot com. So again, this is Lincoln Snyder, I'm president and CEO of NCEA, and I am here with uh, Dr. Ashley Berner of Johns Hopkins. So 
So Ashley, uh, it's an exciting time for talking about uh, discourse and dialogue in the church because we had this um, instruction uh, from the Holy See asking us to be very intentional about creating these cultures of dialogue, uh, understanding that discourse is important for the, the country, but it's also important within the church itself. And so for you as a as a, a fellow traveler in this broader mission of plurality, but but you know, looking at, at the Catholic Church as um, you know a, a friend of the mission, but but a, as a perhaps a more of a dispassionate observer, uh, any thoughts for our for our listeners around uh, this notion of creating cultures of dialogue? I mean, both not just externally, but also internally, and just working with each other as as members of this church or as members of a, of a school community. That's um, so. I think that's a really good question. And I think the first piece is familiar to those of us who are uh, committed to a particular religious faith that, and what I would call an epistemological humility, that we don't, in fact, human beings, we, 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 all of us in the Christian faith, certainly in, in, in other faiths as well, point number one is that we are, we are fallible and imperfect. And so therefore, every disagreement, every belief held, all of those tensions have to be held in some humility because we don't always know the right answer. I mean, if, 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 if scripture and history teaches anything, it's that. Um, so I think as a general matter, that is always good to bear in mind. But secondly, I think for schools in this time, parents and teachers need a lot of support around dialogue and discourse. And, you know, teachers who may not have the content knowledge background or also not the habit of leading debate and deliberation in the classroom need professional development. They need support. They also need to know that their administration has their back. You know, this is politically fraught times mean that Teachers are afraid if they say something wrong, they're going to lose their job. Parents will get upset. Certainly parents, you know, parents need some help from school leaders that, you know, this is an important um, capacity we want to give your kids. And what it means is they're going to sometimes encounter ideas that we don't agree with or they don't agree with, but it's all part of the process. When I taught in an Episcopal high school, I taught comparative religion and ethics and the parents of the kids I taught wanted to have their own, their own kind of gathering to learn the same information. And these are really, these can be really fruitful engagements. Um, but I think creating the conditions that everyone knows we're going to be having deliberation and debate, it's really important and we're all in it together is, is, is it can't be said often enough. Wonderful. You mentioned that you've got a book in the works, uh, and you'd even shared a uh, shared the the subtitle. But tell us more about where your research and your writing is taking you right now. So the the, the the wonderful thing about the institute at Johns Hopkins is that we are able to work with all kinds of school systems across the country. We have an awful lot of research that we've we've gathered that we've used to help our partners improve their schools and so forth. We're sitting on a lot of really interesting stories and I think there's a lot of hope there. And so this, this current book project will simply address pluralism in the context of America. How can we, how can we kind of bring 
the structure of pluralism and the accountability side, the academic side of pluralism together appropriately right here and right now. So it's really a more practical book. The first book I wrote was very theoretical. I had to practically teach myself enough about constitutional law to write the the constitution chapter, but this is more real world. Here's what leaders need to do to get to A. Here's what they need to do to get to B. So it's, I hope it's, it's, it's just a different tone and it reflects the work that we've all been doing in the field. Because you also do consulting work for school systems, you know, Catholic and, and other friends. And so uh, any lessons that or particular things that have surprised you or jumped out at you, especially in this post-COVID time where everything seems to be shifting rather quickly uh, from your work in the field with, with, with us or with other systems? I think the main thing is it just to encourage people that it, it, it takes a lot of courage to open the hood and say, hey, what's really going on here? so that we can get things, you know, improve things, so that we can make things better for the next generation. And, you know, certainly it's a real privilege to be, to work with system leaders who say, we've got a lot right. We want to celebrate it. We've got a lot of things we could build community around and get better. Help us do it. So we do have research projects um, where we've brought curated, you know, our own trademark tools to to bear. And um, I, I have to say, my institute is not on the front lines. We are we exist to support those of you who are on the front lines with students, which is the most important job we have in this country. And you work with systems, and you look at parental choice and all these other things. But I, you know, at the at the end of the day, for all of us as teachers, it comes back to serving that individual child in the desk. And you've been a teacher too. You know, it's a hard time to be a kid right now. We're going to be at our convention. We're going to be talking a lot about Gen Z and mental health, and you know where where kids are at, and how we as adults can better serve them. And these are new and challenging times that aren't like when we grew up. And I, I don't think I grew up that long ago. Uh, but uh, it, it's a different world. You know, what, what kind of things, as you're looking at this from your systems perspective, like what what do you worry about for kids, but also what gives you hope? You know, what do you see in this generation, or like the real positives that you'd like us to see, uh, and looking looking forward us, um, you know, doing more of or being proud of in our kids as, as we're trying to to help this mm-hmm. uh, generation grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the thing that's discouraging is that so many adults are not managing social media well. You know, so many adult leaders who are demeaning one another publicly. Uh, I, I, I find it deeply dispiriting and polarizing. Um, I think that the, the, the encouragement that I see is, is there's a real need and interest that's being met around civic formation. I mean, I've never... I don't remember a time in which, at least in my adult life, when so many organizations left, right, center have been pulling together to help the next generation do a better job of civil tolerance. And I'm involved in a lot of civic formation groups that are working on this in various ways and spaces. And, and, you know, there are some are religious, like Civic Spirit, which is a marvelous organization in New York City that um, is for religious school teachers. And some, some are secular. It's just that is the encouraging part for me. Um, young people are becoming more active and there are 
there are certainly adults and organizations, nonprofits that are trying to step in and uh, build that space out. So if you had uh, one thought for our Catholic school teachers, knowing, knowing what you know about our system, but you know, as NCEA, our, our goal is always when we come together, it's okay, here's the one big thing you're going to be taking away um, for your own benefit and for the benefit of your kids in your school next year. Like what's the one big thing that you'd like to have um, our listeners have in mind as they're coming away from this conversation with you? Mm, that's such a tough question. Can I have two? Can I have two? I have two. And one is to, you know, honor, honor the commitments that, that these schools have made, you know, built, grow into those normative values of being made in the image of God. That is really important. That's number one. So the culture piece. And the second piece is do whatever you can to put rigorous materials in front of kids. We see um, in the research and in our own work and national work, just um, how under challenging, how most Americans teachers under challenge the kids. And that's, that's a real concern. And so I guess the second point would be simply to do everything you can to put rigorous material in front of all the kids. Beautiful. Yeah, you've given us some really good thoughts about about um, how we can be thinking of our, our students and what we can be doing for them and, and for our schools. But, you know, final question, anything that's been inspiring you, be it art or literature, but something that that's that's uh, really uh, uh, given you some inspiration? Uh, oh, yes. So I am rereading Everett Fox's translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and it is remarkable. He's a fantastic translator. It's it's really preserves, from what I understand, the poetry, the passion, the depth and richness of the original Hebrew. And I highly recommend that for anyone. I read it every morning and it just sometimes laughs, sometimes weep. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. We've been speaking with Dr. Ashley Rogers Berner of Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy, a board member of CAPE and a good friend to Catholic schools and to private education in America. So Ashley, we're so grateful for your time. Uh, we will have links to your articles and to your book in the show notes for all of the readers that would be interested in learning more about Ashley's research and work on behalf of discourse, dialogue, and plurality in American education. So Ashley, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 